Welcome to IEQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have changed. Change. Good day wherever you're listening from and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio for Friday, October 23rd, 2009. This week, episode 143 comes to you from Studio B in beautiful Coriopolis, Pennsylvania. My name is Joe Hughes or Radio Joe and here with me in the studio is the Z-Man, Cliff Slotnick. Hey, always my pleasure, Joe. Good to be back together in the studio, Cliff. Um, with us at the controls this week is environmental Annie Koalecki. She's uh, taking over the controls. <laughs> that I am, thank and you. And the wingman is behind her keeping an eye on things for us, so hopefully we won't go off track here, but uh, all's well. All right, uh, let's uh, get today's segments are going to include the microband trivia question. We've got Alan Zelikoff, MD. Uh, we're going to talk about the H1N1, and uh, we're going to get some fact versus fiction on that. We'll have our halftime with Dr. Dieter, and then the second half of our interview with Dr. Zelikoff, and then we'll finish with the roundup. We're going to have to finish right at 1 o'clock today, folks, so we're going to move right along. We've been updating and adding a blog to the IAQ Radio website every week. Check it out at www.iaqradio.com. Before we get started, though, we got to thank those primary sponsors. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IEQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. DryEase Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. DryEase is first in drying solutions at dri-eaz.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at jondon.com. And Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years at legends-enviro.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IAQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. All right. To contact the show, all you have to do is uh, go to our website, iaqradio.com. Go to the link that says go to the show, and then just uh, that'll take you to talk shoe. Click the button there, and you can join the show. You can also call us at 724-444-7444, and our ID number is 1547. You can always get those shows afterwards. They're all archived. You can get them from our iaqradio.com site or from iTunes. And don't forget, we have those IICRC, uh, IAQ Council, now the ACAC, and ABIH, uh, renewal credits available. Just email me at joe.hughes at iaqtraining.com. All right, let's go on to the microband trivia question. Thanks, Joe. Congratulations to John Lapotere. 
the trivia master of MicroShield Environmental Services in Winter Park, Florida, for answering last week's microband trivia question. Win a cool prize by outcompeting IAQ radio listeners and being the first person to correctly answer the microband trivia question. Submitting your answer is very easy. Simply email it to cliffzlotnick at unsmoke.com. Now for the microband trivia question for Friday, October 23, 2009. A human cough releases an explosive charge of air that moves of speeds up to 60 miles an hour. What is the speed of a sneeze? All right, we're going to have Cliff introduce today's guests. Okay, Alan P. Zelikoff, MD, is a physician, inventor, physicist, author, and specialist in the control of biological weapons. He served as a senior scientist with the Center for National Security and Arms Control at Sandia National Laboratories. He has testified before Congress on public health issues and published op-eds in the Washington Post and the Wall Street Journal. Along with Michael Bellamo, he's authored three books, Microbe, Are We Ready for the Next Plague, Doctor, Don't Just Do Something, Stand There, and More Harm Than Good, What Your Doctor May Not Tell You About Common Treatments and Procedures. Okay, Dr. Zelikoff, hang on for one second. We've got some uh, intro music for you. Swamp who got me scared, put my mask on, check my throat in the mirror for them lumps. Okay, Dr. Selkoff, thank you for taking time to speak with Joe and I and our radio listeners today. Okay. My pleasure. All right. Great to have you. Go ahead, Cliff. Why don't you start it off? Sure. Well, you know, you're a physician, and we're wondering if doctors have any idea how people become infected with H1N1. Well, we have some ideas, and there are there are probably roots that haven't been well identified. They're the obvious ones, of course, uh, sneezing and, and coughing and uh, aerosol or fomite particles moving through the air. But... There are probably lots of uh, other routes by which influenza, uh, including the, the new H1N1 uh, influenza, uh, can, in fact, infect people. For example, uh, it is known that the uh, virus uh, will survive for a number of hours, even a number of days, on non-porous surfaces. And one of the interesting uh, recent, uh, and this is very recent information that, that has actually been studied, is the survival of uh, the influenza virus on, of all things, banknotes, um, literally bills. Mm -hmm. wow. um, uh, and what's amazing, there, 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 there are actually two interesting observations about, about banknotes. Um, one is that most banknotes have a lot of cotton. Um, as the as the fiber that makes up the uh, banknote itself, and that fiber is coated with uh, the cotton fibers have a uh, uh, coating on them that is non-porous, and so you, you may think that like paper banknotes would be porous, but in fact they're largely non-porous, and it's on non-porous surfaces that influenza virus can survive for a long period of time, metal surfaces, uh, wood surfaces uh, to a lesser extent. But they survive for at least 48 hours, maybe longer, in a viable state, meaning that they are, in fact, infectious. 
for for 48 hours. And banknotes can move huge distances and move between many, many people uh, in 48 hours. So uh, there are many uh, novel routes by which influenza can get on your fingers. And then if you put your fingers up to your nose, which we do 100 times a day, you can easily infect yourself. Hence, hence the efficacy of frequent hand washing, even if you haven't come into contact directly with somebody who you think might be ill, because you may be picking up the virus from other uh, sort of novel uh, sources. You know, you, you read my mind. I was at the bank machine this morning pulling out some money from the Mac machine. I, I was thinking about, wow, I wonder if, you know, the flu virus could be on there and survive, and, and you just answered that question. Obviously, it is. I'm glad I washed my hands when I got here. Well, I think it might bring back money laundering. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there you go. What, uh, let's, let's talk about some of the information that's being disseminated now with respect to the H1N1. Let's first get in the open uh, anything, the things that you agree with, the basic concepts that the media is spreading that you agree with. Well, let's get a couple of definitions out because I think there's considerable confusion with the use of the term H1N1 uh, because there is a seasonal flu, that, the kind that has been circulating around uh, every year for many, many years, that's also an H1N1 flu. So wh what do these terms H and N mean and why do they have numbers after them? And why is this H1N1 different from the common seasonal H1N1 that's been circulating around for uh, for decades. Well, the H and the N refer to the names of the main surface constituents, chemicals, they're actually proteins, on the surface of the influenza virus. And they go by funny names, hemagglutinin, that's the H, and N, which is neuraminidase. And those names came about largely for historical reasons because it was observed many years ago that when influenza virus of, of any type is dropped into a test tube that has red blood cells from either horses or sheep in it, it will cause those red blood cells to agglutinate or come together, hence the word hemagglutinin. That is not the function of the virus, in fact, in uh, its infectious uh, mechanism in humans or in animals. What, what hemagglutinin really does, besides cause red cells to agglutinate in a test tube in a laboratory, is that it binds the cell, uh, the virus, to uh, specific receptors that are on cells in the respiratory tract in, in humans and uh, other mammals, particularly pigs and horses, and also in birds it binds the virus to respiratory cells and also gastrointestinal cells. So hemagglutinin, the H, is what gets the virus into cells. And as you remember from high school biology, what defines a virus is that by definition, it requires a host cell in order to reproduce. That is, it can't do anything if it's not inside a host cell. Okay. Now, when it reproduces and new viral particles are formed and many thousands or even millions of virus particles can be formed inside of a host cell, those newly formed virus particles migrate then back out to the surface of the host cell, say a lining cell in the bronchial tubes of a human. And they're stuck on the surface because the hemagglutinin is binding 
the virus directly to the same cellular constituents. Well, how's the virus going to get out to infect other cells? That's where the N comes in. It's got a funny name as well. It's called neuraminidase. And anytime you hear the word, uh, a medical word that ends in A-S-E, it means enzyme. So this neuraminidase slices the virus off the surface of the cell so that it can move to different cells. And we characterize influenza viruses based on these two proteins, H and N, and we also assign a number to them based on the slight differences that occur um, in different strains of influenza. And then finally, we also indicate whether or not the H or the N appears to have originated in a human species or in a swine species. So in the case of H1N1 that we're worried about now, it's uh, perhaps best referred to as the pandemic H1 of 2009. The H and certainly the N appear to be of swine origin, that is they originated in pigs, where the virus can mutate very quickly, but it also just so happens that the particular H and N that originated in swine also binds to receptors on human cells. That is different from the H1N1 that's been circulating around in humans for a long time, which has been in the seasonal vaccine for a very long time, because we believe that that H1N1 did not originate in swine. And where it originated, we're really not sure. It may be that it originated in birds and has its lineage going all the way back to the horrible pandemic of 1918, but it, it has mutated since then. All right, so now that we have the definitions out of the way, people can read articles, I think, with a little bit more insight. So what I agree with and what I think is important with regard to this new H1N1 is that because these two surface proteins, the H and the N, are of swine origin and, and haven't been been circulating in the human population for um, many, many decades. Um, perhaps, in fact, they did circulate at some time, which may explain why older folks seem to be relatively immune to this new one, because they've been exposed to something very similar to it in the distant past. But what, what is clear is that people under the age of 40 or so, by and large, despite being exposed to either vaccines in the past or other strains of influenza in the past, do not have good antibodies or other immune system response to the H1N1 2009 variety. So it, it's, it, it clearly uh, has a large susceptible population to attack. The other interesting thing about it is, and the, the, the data on this is, is still a little preliminary, but it appears to be the case that one person can infect um, more people than is typical uh, with uh, influenza if they're infected with this new H1N1 2009. That is, it, it transmits very easily from person to person and may require a lower dose in order to infect somebody. Hmm. Now, why is all this important? Well, it's really important for two reasons. One's the obvious one, which is that it makes people sick and it occasionally kills people. We've had 
uh, something north of 30 deaths, I think, already in the United States. Bear in mind, by the way, that seasonal influenza, the typical garden variety influenza we face every year, kills something in excess of 36,000 people in the United States every year. That's in the U.S. But they tend to be elderly, and we worry um, a lot more, either for good reasons or bad, but we, we seem to worry a lot more about viruses that um, uh, kill, um, kill children, and we don't pay as much attention to the fact that the typical seasonal influenza kills 36,000 people, most of them over the age of 55 or 60 in the United States. So there is, of course, the obvious concern that this new virus will sicken people because they don't have any existing immunity to it. But here's the other thing that is often overlooked but is well known by the influenza experts. The influenza virus, in addition to being um, hypermutable, it, it sort of lives to mutate, uh, can infect a human or a pig or a horse and some other mammals as well, or birds, that are already infected with some other influenza virus. And what's unique about influenza is that its genetic material, the, the uh, genes that determine the behavior of the virus, is broken up into eight strands. And why God did this, I have absolutely no idea. But influenza is literally in eight strands. So imagine a single cell, let's say in your lungs, that is co-infected with this new influenza virus, H1N1-2009, and also one of the other uh, influenza viruses, seasonal influenza, from, uh, that's been circulating around for a long time. Well, there's nothing that says that when, when the, those two viruses reproduce, that their genetic material can't randomly reassort. In fact, it's called reassortment. And out can pop a virus that um, has yet again new properties, including the ability to perhaps co to, to cause more severe disease than just um, uh, bad cough, high fever, and uh, generalized malaise. Perhaps it will have um, effects on specific organs um, other than the respiratory system or the gastrointestinal tract. So that's what we really worry about with the new H1N1. It's highly transmissible, and if a human or a pig, and there have now been pig herds that have been infected with this H1N1 from humans, if they get co-infected with two different influenza viruses at the same time, then a reassortment event may take place, which could, which could, fortunately usually doesn't, but could result in a virus that is even more infectious or has more lethality than garden variety influenza, which is perfectly bad enough already. Wow. Okay. Now, what about what kind of misinformation do you see? And, and what would you like to get across to listeners with respect to misinformation out there? Well, uh, that's almost like asking name a good song or name a bad song. Um, <laughs> there, there's, in my view, uh, a, a tremendous amount of misinformation, mostly with regard to vaccination. Everybody gets nervous about vaccinations, even, even perfectly rational uh, people get nervous uh, about vaccinations, because of past bad experiences with some vaccines. So some of us think back to 1976 and the swine flu uh, at that time, 
in other words, a new influenza that was thought to have had its origin in pigs, but which also could infect people, led to the development of a vaccine in uh, 1976 that may have caused some side effects that were pretty severe. And I emphasize the word may. When I read the literature on this, maybe there are other experts out there who know much more about this than I do. There is still fighting about whether or not the swine flu vaccine in fact caused neurologic damage in a very tiny percentage of people who received it back in 1976. Now, there is absolutely no evidence so far of the hundreds of thousands of doses that of the H1N1 2009 vaccine that's been given in the Southern Hemisphere, maybe it's, it's even millions of doses, that there's been a shred of a hint of a fantasy of a possibility that the, the vaccine causes um, neurologic damage or any other serious side effects. There is no question that it can cause a sore arm and might even cause a little bit of a fever, but that is what you would expect if you actually have an immune response in some circumstances. So that's the first point. The second point is that the vaccine that is given by injection is not a live virus vaccine. You cannot get influenza from an injectable vaccine. That is, you can't get the disease influenza, high fever, cough, prostration, severe muscle aches, and feeling like all you want to do is go to bed. Influenza is a bad, a bad illness. It's, it's not a cold. You can't get that from the injectable vaccine. Yet I see all of the time um, concerns from people, and I hear this from, from uh, intelligent lay folks as well, uh, that they can get influenza from the injectable vaccination. That is simply impossible. Now, there is a live virus vaccine, goes by the name of Flumist, um, that uh, has been around for about 10 years or so, that is given to younger age groups. It's approved for ages 2 through 49, except for people, uh, for, for people in that age group who have severe chronic lung disease like asthma, for example. That is a live virus vaccine. It's attenuated, meaning it's ability to cause uh, severe signs and symptoms is uh, virtually zero, but on rare occasion, it, it does cause an influenza-like syndrome. And there is a flu mist for the H1N1 2009 vaccine, and it's uh, actually preferred over the injectable vaccine because it's, it, it's clearly been demonstrated to generate a much more robust antibody response. The last thing that I want to mention, and we may get some calls or emails about this, is the preservatives uh, or the ad or the ad what are called adjuvants that are in uh, the vaccine. So the the typical preservative that is found in the injectable vaccine, it's not in the live virus vaccine, is a mercury-derived compound called thimerosal. And it's present in the vials, the multi-dose vials of the vaccine in very tiny quantity, and it's there to keep bacteria from growing um, in the, uh, in the uh, bottles so that it, the bottles don't become contaminated with bacteria, which can both destroy the proteins uh, from the virus, literally the surface proteins, the H and the N that I talked about earlier, um, and also you don't want to inject bacteria into people. Um, 
For years, people have been arguing about whether or not thimerosal is associated with autism um, or other neurologic diseases in kids, and there is simply no evidence to indicate that that is the case. So those are the main things that I would start with, and perhaps we'll get some other questions. Okay. Cliff? You know, you'd mentioned uh, that we wipe our noses 100 times a day. Um, can you suggest any behavioral modifications that we could make to prevent infection, such as, you know, wiping our high-touch surfaces like computer, uh, keyboards, you know, multiple times a day and, and stuff like that? Um, you'll be delighted to know that while you ask the question, I wipe my nose twice. Okay. <laughs> and um, I did it on uh, one time on the back of my hand and the other time on a Kleenex. Okay. Um, so it, it's just an, a normal response. Um, well, give, given that many surfaces can be contaminated with influenza viruses, and who knows how many surfaces out there that we haven't assayed um, uh, are, are contaminated with influenza, uh, the single most effective thing to do is frequent hand washing. And uh, there's actually been a study on this, believe it or not, uh, where um, uh, human volunteers who had already been vaccinated against influenza had their hands contaminated intentionally with uh, influenza virus, and they either did nothing, they washed their hands, they used alcohol wipes, um, and when they washed their hands, I mean they used soap and water, uh, they uh, uh, used alcohol wipes or alcohol-based solutions, and it's, it's abundantly clear that uh, hand washing alone with soap and water is uh, extraordinarily efficacious at getting rid of the virus from the surface of your hands. And it can reside on the surface of your hands, which are fairly non-porous, by the way, for many, many hours. Um, and so hand washing or alcohol wipes are, are clearly very effective. Um, my personal view is when I go to the gym, because there are 50 other people in the gym, some of whom are sneezing, some of whom appear to be healthy, but who knows who's been using the, uh, the weight machine that I'm about to use, is that I, uh, I, I frequently uh, will uh, use the uh, alcohol dispensers, the hand wash alcohol, uh, waterless right. uh, dispensers, uh, while, I'm, while I'm working out. Um, with regard to trying to decontaminate your own surfaces, uh, it sounds like a good idea. Uh, it uh, resonates well. Um, my gut sense is it makes sense, but to the best of my knowledge, there, there aren't very many studies on how that interrupts the chain of, of influenza transmission, but I would, I would be very surprised if it doesn't help to uh, interrupt the chain of uh, influence of transmission, particularly if you're sharing a device with other people. So even though I don't have any evidence to prove that uh, when I go to the gym uh, the, uh, and, and work out that um, I'm actually decreasing my risk of getting influenza by using the alcohol uh, solutions, I do it. And then when I'm done at the gym, I wipe down the surface and I hope other people do it as well. Uh, so I, I think that makes sense, but I don't have any proof to tell you that it does. You know, one of the things, there have been, uh, I guess there's a lot of scientific confirmation out there about uh, fungal mold and so on and so forth causing uh, respiratory problems and that it's, you know, I think there's strong evidence that it's, you know, linked to asthma. Would you consider asthmatics uh, especially vulnerable to H1N1? Well, they probably are. Uh, by the way, I, I do agree with you about um, the mold problem. Um, there's a 
a researcher out of the University of, I'm sorry, Texas Tech University named David Strauss, who I think has cut through a lot of the chaff and has been able to show that at least some molds like Stachyboitrus right. are indeed responsible for respiratory um, uh, symptoms that can be pretty severe. Now, to, to get to your question about asthma, um, if only because kids with asthma or even adults with asthma take certain drugs, uh, usually steroids, um, inhaled steroids that inhibit the immune response, they probably are more susceptible to influenza. And indeed, asthmatic kids and adults are excluded from the eligible group for getting the live virus vaccine for just that reason. There is, there is a concern that because they either are more susceptible from the drugs they take or from the basic asthmatic process per se, that we don't give those folks the inhalable live virus vaccine uh, because there is there's good reason to believe that they uh, may develop systemic disease from the live virus vaccine. So the short answer to your question is yes, I do believe that asthmatic kids are at greater risk for getting influenza per se, and they certainly are at greater risk for complications if they get influenza, which only redoubles the importance of trying to protect um, uh, asthmatics, particularly children, from getting influenza in the first place. And that's primarily because of the medications they're already on? Um, I, I don't know that I would say primarily. Okay. Um, the, the, the fundamental, well, let me take a step back. I'm being a little bit too grandiose. Um, we don't know what the fundamental uh, process is that causes asthma. Um, what we do know is that in asthmatic kids, in addition, and adults, um, but we tend to focus on kids because they're most severely affected uh, as a group, um, in addition to the, the spasm of the uh, airways, the bronchospasm, there's uh, production of uh, a lot of thick respiratory secretions, and uh, the influenza virus does really well um, in those uh, respiratory secretions. It, it survives for a, a, a long period of time in those respiratory secretions. In fact, in, when I mentioned earlier about the influenza virus on banknotes, uh, when the studies were done, this was actually published in a very well-respected journal in 2008, they, they literally did it, um, another experiment where, in addition to contaminating banknotes with influenza and seeing how long they could recover the virus uh, in a viable form, they they looked at how long the virus would survive if there was a little bit of respiratory secretion mixed in with the virus on the banknotes, and the virus lasted a lot longer on the banknotes. So you've got to believe the same thing is happening inside of um, the lungs of, of asthmatics. So I wouldn't blame it on the drugs necessarily uh, because the, the steroid medications not only help relieve the bronchospasm or prevent the bronchospasm from occurring, they decrease the amount of this thick, obstructing respiratory mucus, and that may actually make people somewhat less susceptible to inhaling the virus. But in general, we think of steroid medications as being immunosuppressives, and so there may be a balance going on between uh, decreasing the amount of respiratory secretions, keeping the airways open, but knowing that we're probably also inhibiting to some extent the immune response within the lungs with, with those steroids. In any case, it's extraordinarily important for 
asthmatics, particularly children, to be protected against influenza because they get into trouble very, very quickly. And of the kids that have died out here in New Mexico, we, we have had a disproportionate share of the deaths in the United States. We've had eight deaths or nine deaths, I think, to date in New Mexico out of something less than 40 across the whole country, so way out of proportion to our share of the population. Um, the, the, the bulk of those have been in kids with respiratory disease and primarily asthma. That was my next question, I guess, is um, are people with other types of respiratory disease more likely to have problems with this particular strain of flu, like uh, COPD or um, just people that have maybe even like um, asbestosis or silicosis, some of the dusty lung diseases, are, are they also more likely to have problems? Great question. To the best of my knowledge, there is no, no information on that with regard to the, dust, um, uh, the dusty lung diseases like silicosis or as, asbestosis. Uh, for chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, I don't think there's any question that um, the severity of illness, if uh, a person with COPD or emphysema gets influenza, is much higher than in an, a similarly aged uh, person who doesn't have COPD. With regard to their susceptibility to the uh, influenza virus per se, uh, I simply don't know. But if they get it, the likelihood of a severe manifestation is far greater than in people without COPD. Okay. We're going to break for halftime. We're going to come back, talk specifically a little bit more about the vaccines, et cetera, with Dr. Zelikoff. But before we do, we're going to take our halftime break with uh, Dr. Dieter. And before we do that, let's thank those sponsors again, Cliff. Okay. All right. Let's start with... Uh, first, Our first association sponsor, we're delighted to have the Indoor Air Quality Association, a nonprofit, multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at iaqa.org. And we want to thank our advertisers, Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensors, software technology, and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at wolfsense.com. And ProRestore Products. For cleaning, odor removal, and antimicrobial products, remediators trust and depend on, visit them at ProRestoreProducts.com. And, of course, our primary sponsors, Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IEQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information are available at ieconnections.com. Dry Ease Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. Dry Ease is first in drying solutions at dri-eaz.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at jondon.com. And Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years at legends-enviro.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. All right, let's go to Dr. Dieter for halftime. All right. Hello, Dr. Dieter. Dr. Wow, do we have you on the line? All right. I love that Beethoven stuff. <laughs> <laughs> you have a quick question or Maybe comment? I something from Art Blakey and jazz. I like that, too. Anyway, I have, first of all, for the first time in my life, I heard 
that since I'm 70 years old, I'm better protected than an 80-year-old. <laughs> and isn't that what? It's the only thing that gets better with age. Nothing gets better with age. Believe me, I know it. Not even wine. The other day I opened a bottle of wine, which was 15 years old, and I dumped it down the, the sink. Anyway, uh, there were a couple of questions I had that the, um, the transmission of the H1N1 is easy. I mean, if you sneak, I mean, it's a droplet, it's an aerosol uh, uh, that goes into the air. So what's the difference between an H1 and an N1 and another virus uh, as far as the transmission is concerned? That was one of the problems. The other one is, and I still don't, I have never gotten an answer for that on that personal immune response, which is just unbelievable. And Joe knows that I may have said it on another show. I've never been vaccinated against anything except smallpox. And the other day, my doctor suggested that I get a shot against shingles. And... Um, uh, when I was, uh, and Joe knows that that's a long story, uh, Joe knows why. When I was a kid between the zero and ten years old, uh, I didn't know what a doctor was and I didn't know what a hypodermic needle was, so I never got vaccinated. Now, here's the interesting thing. I never, ever, knock on wood, had a cold or the flu. Did I acquire an immune response due to the fact, I mean, that they were all homemade. I had my blood scanned by a friend of mine from the old University of Pittsburgh in the immuno, uh, immunology department, and I have all the antibodies. I don't know where I got them from because I never had A, B, C, and D. They said, oh, yeah, you did. You have them. So is it better for me to make my own homemade tailor-made antibodies to my body. Is that a good idea? All right. Well, we brought Dr. Zelikoff back on the line. Let's see if he's got answers for those two questions. Doc, Dr. Zelikoff? Well, lots, um, lots of studies are out there that uh, have been done. They're very much like what you just described was uh, done to you, Dieter. Um, uh, that is... Uh, Adults who have never been vaccinated against the influenza in particular uh, have their blood assay to see if they have antibodies against common circulating strains. Uh, l let me um, briefly uh, take a, a diversion from this. Th there are two parts of the immune system, uh, the antibody uh, response and something that's called the cell-mediated response, where white cells... Uh, can directly attack a uh, infectious organism without the presence of antibodies. And typically what we measure, because it's easy, is the antibody level against particular viruses. It's much, much harder to measure the so-called cell-mediated immune system uh, or that portion of the immune system in humans because you have to deal with live cells then, and they're very... Uh, quickly to handle and they die very quickly in the test tube, et cetera, et cetera. So if you ask the question, if, if I went out there and I surveyed people in your age group who've never been vaccinated against influenza, do most, do most more than 50%, have at least antibodies against 
many of the common circulating strains of, of influenza? The answer is yes. And how did that happen? Well, it's almost certainly the case that uh, you had influenza and for whatever reason just didn't develop um, such a severe set of signs and symptoms that you remember it. Or you might have written it off as a really bad cold. Um, influenza that we recognize is typically a severe disease, but it may well be that in some people influenza manifests itself as something worse than a, a, a bad cold, but, but not the severe prostration that we typically uh, think of as, as, as being true influenza. So it is the case that uh, you don't have to be vaccinated to have uh, immunity. And then one other subtle thing is if you do look at this cell-mediated immune response, which, as I say, is much harder to measure, uh, you find that uh, people have a cell-mediated immune response not only to the influenza viruses that have circulated through the United States, but we now know that some substantial portion of people uh, over the age of 40 in the United States have cell-mediated immunity against avian influenza, that H5N1 that you remember uh, a number of years ago we were warned was going to perhaps turn into another pandemic, um, and uh, which I discussed the last time I was on the program. My, my impression was that it was highly unlikely that that would be the case. And it turns out that there is, in fact, existing immunity in adults, probably most adults in the United States, to H5N1, despite the fact the virus has never circulated in the United States. So uh, I'm not here to tell you that we understand fully what explains all of that, but your observation, Dieter, is correct, that there are lots of, of adults who have never been vaccinated who, in fact, have antibodies or cell-mediated immune response against common circulating strains of influenza. Great. Dr. Zolikoff, I had a text question follow-up to one I had asked earlier. Um, they asked about the incident rates comparing smokers to non-smokers. We were talking about lung disease, and I did not mention that. Can you comment on that? Uh, yeah, uh, this, is, this has been looked at uh, many, many times. So if you, um, if, if you look at all comers, in, at least the seasonal influence, I don't think we have the data yet for the new H1N1-2009, um, but but smokers um, have a far greater so-called attack rate. That is, the percentage of people who will get influenza who are smokers exceeds the percentage of people who are non-smokers. By the way, it's estimated that something in excess of 20% of people in any given year in the United States will get influenza. Most of them aren't knocked down so much that they uh, uh, actually miss many days of work but a 20% attack rate is pretty darned high. And in, um, in smokers, it's, it's far greater than that. Okay. Cliff? Yeah, uh, Doctor, uh, last year when you were here, um, we were really most concerned about avian flu. And what I'd like to ask you is whether or not uh, last year's situation uh, with the avian flu, whether that's resulted in a heightened awareness towards H1N1 swine flu this year or a diminished awareness of it. Um, certainly in the influenza community, that is to say among scientists, it, it's resulted, I think, in a, in a heightened awareness. Um, and perhaps even, I, I'm, I'm stretching here because I don't think there have been any really good surveys, but 
I would venture to say among physicians there's probably been a heightened awareness. So if there, if there was a good effect of the avian influenza um, warnings that fortunately didn't pan out and actually predictably were not going to pan out, um, it, it is that many of us in medicine who didn't pay much attention to influenza actually started to learn a little bit more about it. Now, if, if you're looking at the population at large, um, while, again, I don't think there are any surveys on this, you do have to wonder if warnings come out about a particular new strain of influenza, like the avian influenza back in 2003 or 2004, um, and it doesn't pan out, uh, do people become inured to, to the warnings? Uh, I worry about that a great deal. Uh, many of my colleagues in public health think that's the case, that is that the public tends to tune it out because the last potential threat didn't manifest, so why should we worry about this one? And I would simply caution that in this case, it's a totally different story than the H5N1 because both the H and the N on the surface of the influenza virus are significantly different from any of the recently circulating strains, at least those that have been circulating for the past 20 or, or 30 years. So this is a very different beast and definitely warrants our attention. All right. Speaking of warranting our attention, let's talk about vaccinations for a moment. Um, I want to get your opinion in general, but then uh, if you would, could you give me specifics on a question I have? If I can't get both, the seasonal flu vaccine and the swine flu, or the, the H1N1 2009 vaccine, should I just get one or the other, and which would I choose? Uh, you mean if literally you had to choose between one or the other, which one, which one should you choose? Right. Well, if you've been vaccinated before against seasonal influenza, you'll probably have some, some protection, emphasize some, against the current circulating seasonal strains and also, in the Southern Hemisphere, which just got done with its influenza season, so they just got done with their winter influenza season, they're going into spring now while we're going into winter, 98%, I'm not making this number up, 98% of all influenza isolates uh, from patients uh, with disease in the Southern Hemisphere were the new H1N1 swine pandemic influenza. Hmm. So it's a no-brainer. You go for the swine influenza if you have a swine influenza vaccine if you have the choice of only one. Gotcha. Okay. Cliff? Um, yeah, actually, what I'd like to know is whether or not you think that the public health sector and local government are adequately prepared to manage uh, an epidemic of infectious disease, uh, you know, like H1N1, uh, should it get out of hand in the United States. Well, I'll try not, not to get on a soapbox about this because this is where I do most of my work and, and, and my, my research. Um, the short answer is that people in public health are extraordinarily bright. Uh, they tend to know much more about infectious disease and statistics and disease models than virtually anyone else in medicine, um, but they don't get real-time data or anything close to real-time data in general. So while I believe that the capability 
exists, that is, for making uh, informed, scientifically-based decisions, that definitely exists in the public health community. They're some of the smartest, most clever folks I've ever met. They don't get information in anything near the, the, the timely fashion that they need in order to respond, particularly when there's a highly communicable disease like influenza. That's why I've spent most of my time working on a system that makes it very easy for doctors to report um, either unusual cases or unusually severe cases uh, of presumed infectious disease because it's of acute onset and there's a fever associated with it. I've been working on a system that makes it easy for docs to report that to public health officials so that it doesn't take a week uh, or even three days would be too long to wait for a laboratory report, but literally within a few seconds of, of seeing a case, a clinician can report this and poof, it shows up on the desktop of a public health official and they get to see all of the similar cases in their area. Now we've been doing this for six years in Northwest Texas um, with a system that's called the Syndrome Reporting Information System. It's a challenging environment because in Northwest Texas you have one big town and a number of small towns people spread out over a very, very large area, uh, but who then um, come to a few centers for their, for their medical care. So it's very tough to get information about uh, individuals uh, in this sort of mixed urban and rural environment. Yet we've succeeded in doing it because we have the cooperation of, of uh, a good portion of the medical community and essentially every single school nurse at every single school in the area reports either unusually severe symptoms or unusual symptoms, let's say a fever with a skin rash, that's pretty unusual um, in, in kids or adults. And that information immediately is made available to everybody who is on the system, makes it possible for public health officials to then make the decisions for response that you just asked about. And to give you an example of how powerful this will be, last May, when you recall uh, we had a, our first scare with H1N1 2009, there were many places in the country that were uh, debating whether or not to close down schools, uh, prohibit uh, large gatherings like at uh, sporting events, and they were struggling, because, not because they were um, incapable of making decisions, uh, but because they didn't have the information to make those decisions. Well, in the Northwest Texas area, in and around the city of Lubbock and the, and the 45 counties around Lubbock where uh, the syndrome reporting information system has been in operation, they knew exactly how many cases of H1N1 they had, which was zero. And they put that information out and they updated it on a daily basis for everybody to see, including decision makers at schools, political decision makers, as well as doctors and nurses. And the bottom line was that they didn't put Tamiflu in the water supply, which is uh, largely what unfortunately is happening across much of the country, and they, they didn't have any school closings at all. So my point simply is that given near real-time information that comes from competent observers, physicians and nurses and school nurses, public health officials are exquisitely well prepared to respond. But in the absence of that information, they are not. Okay. We're, we're running low, so I've got a couple quick ones. There's several text messages. I'm going to try and combine a few, um, and some of this relates back to what we had discussed in our, um, our prep for the show. 
One is on other types of things we can do to uh, help keep from getting the flu in the first place. Um, I had uh, sent you the little tidbit of uh, gargle twice a day with warm salt water. Any, uh, any thoughts on whether gargling twice a day with warm salt water will help a little bit? Um, it may. Um, there's, there aren't very many controlled trials on that because they're hard to do. Uh, once again, I would, I would reemphasize the, the obvious. Um, uh, hand washing frequently. It clearly works because you're going to pick up influenza from heaven, heaven's knows how many surfaces. And, you know, if you can be polite about it to avoid shaking people's hands. So um, I, I have uh, personally uh, recommended, and in fact, myself, I do the, I do the, H, the H1N1 hand bump rather than shaking hands um, if it's possible to do so. And I explain that to individuals when I meet them. Uh, because I, I think it's probably effective at, at keeping me from getting influenza on my hands and then rubbing my nose uh, later. Great. So the single most efficacious thing is frequent hand washing. And I know it sounds banal, and I know it sounds trivial, and I know it sounds like what your mother taught you when you were in kindergarten, but it's exactly right. What about uh, antioxidants, vitamins, boosting your natural immunity? Is, is there well, – obviously that's a good thing to do anyway, but – one of the questions that, text, that were texted in is, is that going to help with this issue? Uh, it's a very fair question. It's a good question. I, I simply don't think that there's adequate data uh, to say. Um, I would never tell people not to take a multivitamin every day, but if you eat a, uh, a reasonably uh, balanced diet, it's, it's very hard in America not to get, not to get all the vitamins and minerals that, uh, like zinc, for example, uh, that you need. But if you want to supplement that with a multivitamin a day, it certainly doesn't make things worse, and it may have some some benefit. One more. I'd, ne I'd never Go heard ahead. of this one, and I just thought I'd run it by you. Clean your nostrils at least once every day with warm salt water. Um, blow your nose hard once a day. Swab the nostrils with uh, warm salt water on a uh, cotton bud tip. I simply can't answer the question because I've never seen any any good science published on it. It's a, it's a fair question, but I simply don't think there's any data on it. Great. Okay. Well, now we've got a couple questions on HVAC systems. My NADCA people emailed me, and I've got one here texted about uh, ASHRAE's Airborne Infectious Diseases Position Document. I know we had talked briefly about that. Did you get a chance to look at that, and uh, do you have any comment? Um, I did not, so I, I really can't comment on it. Sorry about that. That's, that's all right. Any comment on at all because I'm getting several questions about um, HVAC systems and whether or not there's anything in particular we can do. I know we talked about this before the show that maybe we would be better suited to discuss that, but any thoughts at all on that? Well, I, I did do this much. Um, uh, I, I briefly did look at the, the, the AFRI document, and, and I, I did do a, a search last night um, to see if there's anything in the medical literature about HVAC systems and decontamination or the way you would operate an HVAC system with regard to influenza, and I couldn't find a single article on it. Now, that may be because I was looking in the medical literature. So uh, th there's not much published out there uh, among the public health uh, epidemiologists and infectious disease uh, experts. There may be more information in, in uh, your field than is in uh, the medical field on that question. 
One more quick one I know should be pretty easy for you. Can someone who has H1N1 but doesn't have the symptoms, I, I assume they mean the 2009 H1N1, can they spread that to other people? You mean if they are harboring the virus but have no symptoms? Correct. Uh, if they have it on their hands, the, there's probably no doubt that the answer is, is, is yes. Okay. And they may have it on their hands just by picking it up from some other surface or from handling banknotes, for heaven's sakes. Um, we, we believe that uh, shedding of the virus, though, only occurs, that is shedding f from an infected individual only occurs if that individual is symptomatic. So it's pretty, un it's, it's hard to measure because we don't frequently test asymptomatic individuals uh, people with no symptoms at all. So it, it's hard to know if people can have what would be called a subclinical infection, no, no signs or symptoms, and, and shed the virus. Now, that does happen with other viruses, but I'm unaware, I could be wrong about this, but I'm, I'm unaware of that happening with any influenza strain, including the new H1N1. Okay, and last, any recommendations for people on in schools, et cetera, where there's an outbreak, and as far as cleaning surfaces, any thoughts on that? Sure. Um, uh, schools are, of course, a big problem because kids are crowded together, and uh, I can tell you we, we, we have some very good data from, from where the, the CIRRUS system is operating in uh, northwest Texas. About 30% of, of, of high school students were uh, absent uh, over the past four weeks at some time, um, presumably because 30%, presumably because of influenza uh, H1N1. So you have to believe that there are kids in school who are spreading the virus around and contaminating lots of non-poor surfaces. Think, think about uh, writing desks, for example, um, uh, in, the, in the chemistry laboratory, the, uh, the the hard surfaces in the in the chemistry lab, anything that's non-porous, is is likely to be contaminated with the virus. So, uh, wiping down uh, large surfaces is, of course, a big logistical problem. You know that much better than I do. And so, once again, we come back to, given the fact that it's on surfaces, you're going to get it on your hands. So, in schools, it's probably most important of all places to engage in frequent hand washing. And then, uh, and if you're sick to stay home and stay home until you're better uh, without fever for at least 24 hours before going back to school. Okay. Cliff? Yeah, it would, it would seem that in – I think what happens is schools have a tendency to panic. You know, uh, they have an outbreak. All of a sudden they panic. They spend a lot of money on deep cleaning. They spend a lot of money on fogging. And, you know, they may have really, really – a nice, clean, sanitary place, and then all of a sudden, a kid comes home or a kid comes into the school that's highly infected, and it's contaminated again. It would seem that it would be a lot easier to give the kids some detergent and water and a little spray bottle, and they wipe their desk, and you have one of these sitting on every desk, and it's a whole lot easier. It's a whole lot cheaper. I think it would be a whole lot more effective, and I think it would be a whole lot more beneficial. The same as giving every kid a little bottle of hand sanitizer and it just seems to make a lot more sense than this panic and spending, you know, huge amounts of money for, uh, you know, procedures that are not going to provide any ongoing benefit. You know, most antimicrobial products are not long-lasting, so they're not going to, you know, provide any long-lasting benefit. 
And, you know, with the air exactly handling. Exactly right. And, in fact, you know, a number of, of universities have, have done just this. They're, uh, now that universities are in session, they're literally passing out kits that have just those things in them, including spray bottles for wiping down surfaces where you're going to be sitting for a long period of time. It's an excellent idea. And I agree with you. We, we tend to uh, we tend to go to the high-tech stuff when the low-tech stuff is not only cheaper, it's much more efficacious. Yeah, and with the ventilation system, you know, rather than trying to clean the whole system, you know, every room has the door through which the air comes in, which are the vents and the diffusers. Deal with the diffusers. Add additional filtration. Put something on there sticky to, you know, catch you know, airborne particles and dust. I think there's a lot of things you can do that are inexpensive uh, that are going to provide more benefit, and we know the EPA is not thrilled with the idea of fogging sanitizers in HVAC systems anyway. All right. Well, Dr. Zelikoff, I know you've got to run right about 1 o'clock. It's 1 o'clock now, and before you do, is there anything you'd like to add? And, and especially I, I would like to maybe kind of emphasize your thoughts on the vaccine issue before we go. Uh, I, I strongly encourage people to get vaccinated if they can. Um, it's especially important for kids with, uh, with chronic lung disease and, and pregnant women. And uh, if there is a risk to the vaccine, it is extremely small and it is far outweighed by the benefits. Tremendous. We had one other quick yeah, one. Actually, we, wanted to yeah, ask we had a texted question and it's something right. that you probably know about uh, is it true the only smallpox samples still in existence are stored very securely in the united states and not nearly as securely in russia uh, smallpox my favorite question <laughs> well i work at the laboratory in russia where which is in Novos, outside of the town of novosibirsk in the middle of siberia where the where the russian collection is held and it is very secure in my view okay what we don't know is what we don't know and that is when smallpox was eliminated as a naturally occurring disease, the World Health Organization asked um, all countries to submit any samples that they had in laboratories to either the CDC or to uh, the laboratory in, in Russia, which originally was in uh, Moscow and is now in Novosibirsk. Who knows if that was actually done? There was no way to measure the compliance. My personal view is that if only because of oversight there are samples of the smallpox virus sitting in the back of some freezer saved by some biologist, biologists never throw anything away, <laughs> that just never got recognized. And um, I, would, I would think that it, it would be foolish to assume that the bad actors in the world wouldn't have kept some of the smallpox virus around in secreted away in some laboratories that we'll simply never know anything about. But I'm, I'm very confident that the the stocks at the CDC and at the Vector Laboratory in Novosibirsk are highly secure. All right. Well, this is Radio Joe. I want to say thank you so much to Dr. Alan Zelikoff for joining us this week and uh, having a fascinating discussion on this year's uh, big issue. The uh, We're going to call it the Pandemic H1 of 2009, right. uh, following your advice. Thanks for joining us. It's my pleasure. Thank you. All right. Uh, listeners, before we go, let's uh, unmute Dr. Dieter real quick. We didn't get to go to the roundup, but I wanted to make sure if he had any parting comments, we could do that. Dieter? Yeah, well, just uh, just a quick question. Uh, the cells uh, in, in dogs and cats are not very different from the human ones. And, you know, they have the kidneys and the lungs and the livers and all of that other stuff that we have. 
In fact, if you open up a cat, it looks almost exactly like that of a human. Do they get um, they do, do do they get the flu? That is interesting. I never heard of it. And the good question would be then, why not? I mean, does every cat, does every dog, <laughs> which is in fact <laughs> not infected, exposed to uh, the flu virus, do they get it? It's interesting. I don't know. But uh, that was one of the things, and I had uh, 10,000 more questions for Alan, but uh, obviously we're out of time. He's got to run, but I'll try and uh, I'll shoot him an email on that, Dater. I want to thank you also for joining us this week. Hey, listeners, don't forget. Uh, any anytime. Okay, next week we have a heat drying show with the John Don folks. There's been a lot of discussion of heat drying and the pros and cons, and um, they've done a great deal of research on it. They didn't jump right out of the box and throw something on the market, and so we're going to have a very interesting, in-depth discussion of that issue next week with uh, the Z-Man here. Okay. This is uh, Radio Joe saying, before we go, I want to thank environmental Annie Koalecki for helping us out at the controls, uh, the wingman Chris Boizel for peeking over his shoulder, making sure everything's going all right. Of course, my co-host, the Z-Man. We'll see you all back here next week for the next edition of IAQ Radio. This has been another IAQ Radio production.